thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Alright, so now let's uh, continue our study of the book of Leviticus, and we are studying chapters 21 and 22. So as I mentioned to you before, we're not necessarily going in order, but we are following a logical sequence, and we have so far covered the chapters that dealt with the consecration of the priests, and then how the priests ought to behave within the sanctuary. Well, chapters 21 and 22 pick up from there, continue that same line, in chapters 21 and 22, God is going to be very specific about who can serve, what must they do, and how they must offer. So what I'm going to do right now is read to you those two chapters and then come back and talk about them. So let's start by um, uh, briefly reading these, uh, I mean quickly reading these two chapters and then come back to the notes. So chapter 21, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priest, the son of Aaron, and say to them, that none of them shall defile himself for the dead among his people, except for his nearest of kin, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may defile himself. He shall not defile himself as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. Verse 5, they shall not make tonsures upon, tonsures upon their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the offerings by fire to the Lord, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a harlot or a woman who has been defiled, neither sh they shall marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall consecrate him, for he, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And a daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. So you can, you can see these, uh, these uh, commands, uh, again, might cause quite a few of us to either consternation or wonder about these regulations because it's some very stringent or strange. Verse 10, The priest who is chief among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor rent his clothes. That's the, the priest who is chief is the high priest. He shall not go into any dead body, nor define himself, even for his father or for his mother. Neither shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. 
And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or one divorced, or a woman who has been defiled, or a harlot. These he shall not marry, but he shall take to wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his children among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctify him. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, None of your descendants throughout the generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a, uh, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's offering by fire, since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He, sh he may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not come near the veil or approach the altar, because he is a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctify them. So, chapter 21 really speaks about who can approach the altar. And it has some interesting regulations to it. In chapter 22, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to keep away from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they may not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. And then, say to them, If anyone of all your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy things, which the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, which he has an, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the line of Aaron who is a leper or suffers a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with a dead or a man who has had an emission of semen, and whoever touches a creeping thing by which he may be made unclean, or a man from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever the, his uncleanness may be, the person who touches any such shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun is down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because such are his food. That which dies of itself or is torn by beast, he shall not eat, defiling himself by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctify them. An outsider, an outsider shall not eat of a holy thing. A sojourner of the priests or a hired servant shall not eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and those that are born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she shall not eat of the offering of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth she may eat of her father's food, yet no outsider shall eat of it. And if a man eats of a holy thing unwittingly, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. The priest shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, when any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents his offering whether in payment of a vow or as a freewill offering, which is offered to the Lord as a burnt offering, to be accepted, you shall offer a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch, or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, or 
make of them an offering by fire upon the altar to the Lord. A bull or a lamb which has had a part too long or too short you may present for a free will offering, but for a votive offering it cannot be accepted. Any animal which has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut you shall not offer to the Lord or sacrifice within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them, because of their mutilation they will not be accepted for you. When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as an offering by fire to the Lord. And whether the mother is a, is a cow or a ewe, you shall not kill both her and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctify you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So, I read it quickly on purpose. My intention right now isn't necessarily to get you to grasp all these little details, but I think from the whole listing of things, a few things should emerge. Number one, it's complicated. It's not simple. Number two, it isn't... Um, I mean, it's dangerous to be a priest. Think of it this way. Okay? It's, it's a difficult job. It's not easy. And number three, there are a number of regulations and prescriptions which sound kind of strange to our ears. We need to understand that. So we're going to get into the details of this thing. But before we do that, let's go through the structure. Let's understand what the structure, how, how is that structured, and let's understand the purpose behind it. So those two chapters are addressed primarily to the priesthood not to the Israelite people as a whole. And they deal with five topics. Laws of purity, which prohibit priests from having contact with the dead. Marital restrictions imposed on the priests. The requirement of physical soundness for the officiating priesthood. So, laws of purity, you can't touch the dead. Marital restrictions, requirement of physical soundness. Prerequisites for partaking of sacred donations allocated to the priest as their food. And in addition, paralleling the requirement of physical soundness for priests is the requirement that sacrificial animals also be free physical de defects. So if you think about it, first dealing with the dead, then dealing with marriage, then dealing with what you can eat and cannot eat, then dealing of who can, what a priest should look like who's supposed to serve. Essentially, there is a coverage. And then finally, what the animals that need to be sacrificed should look like. Now, we've already, we've already been told in prior chapters when we dealt with the sacrifice what kind of animal you're supposed to offer. But if you go back to those chapters, you will see that there weren't specific details given about the animals themselves other than you should offer the best. Why? Because those chapters were addressed to all of Israel. And it isn't the job of all of Israel to examine an offering and make sure it is acceptable to the Lord. It is the job of the priest. So when an Israelite brings his offering, an animal, right? It's the job of the priest to say, yes, that's acceptable, and it's not or not. And the responsibility hangs over his head. 
not the Israelite. That's why we see these restrictions being presented here. Now, these laws are organized as follows. The code for ordinary priests are, is given first. That's verse 21, chapter 21, verse 1 through 9. It begins with funerary regulations and concludes with marital restrictions. So from 1 to 9, we're going to see funerary restrictions and marital regulations. Then, from verse 10 to 15, it's the same code, but for the high priest. Again, funerary regulations and marital restrictions. A priest can, can defile himself with the dead of his own flesh. His sons, his mother, his father, his sister. A high priest cannot at all. Never. He can never attend any ceremonials for the dead. Forbidden. It's weird to our ears, right? Because we cannot conceive, if you're Catholic, you cannot conceive of a ceremonial to the dead without a priest. Right? But in Levitical priesthood, they were pretty much, for most cases, absent. So if somebody died, if somebody died, who was not of the tribe of Levi, who was not of the house of Aaron, because remember, not all Levites are priests. Only the house of Aaron amongst the Levites are priests. So if someone outside of that small group dies, there were no priests there for the ceremonial of the dead. Okay? And by the way, this sheds, this sheds biblical light on that mysterious answer that Jesus gave one of the men who wanted to follow him. Right? The man said, I want to follow you, but... I, have, I want to go bury my father. And Jesus answers, let the dead bury the dead. Which sounds strange to our ears. Let the dead bury the dead. But if you understand that there is no priest present at the ceremonial of the dead, you begin to understand the whole context behind Jesus' answer. Okay? I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's just a st start. So you can see even there... The Levitical echo is present. And, and I'm going to also show you how in the Our Father, the Our Father cannot fully be understood without the Levitical priesthood that we're talking about here. Okay. So, funeral regulations and marital restrictions for both the priests and then the high priest. Then, we go through an enumeration of bodily def defects that render a priest unfit to officiate in the sacrificial cult. And then after that, we deal with priests who become impure, but whose unfitness is only temporary. So one, one section is, no way. You will never be able to... Okay, let me give you an example. Again, something really strange to our ears. Uh, a priest is... I mean, a man is currently a priest, and he is fit to offer sacrifice. Then he breaks his arm. That renders him unfit. Completely unfit. And there's a simple reason why. Because in ancient times, 
setting a bone was not a known science. So when you break a leg or you break an arm, you're pretty much maimed. Because they did not know exactly how to set that bone back in place. Okay? So, there are some of those considerations we need to keep in mind to better understand what's behind those laws. And then, chapter 22, 10 through 16, states the privileges of the priesthood, only they, not lay Israelites, may partake of sacred donations. So, let's begin now with considering those restrictions we've heard about marital, I mean funerary and marital relations. Why restrict those? Because both of them express the concern that priests preserve the purity of their persons. Priests Priestly impurity that re, that is due to either marital um, impurities or connection with the dead could render the sanctuary impure. See again, this is a concept very foreign to our ears because we know it's almost implicit amongst Catholics. We know that, and Orthodox as well. That I mean, Orthodox don't necessarily have the same. Uh, they don't keep the, 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 the Eucharist the way we do. But we know that no matter what we do, we cannot, we do not, right, by our action, cause the tabernacle to become impure. It's a complete foreign notion to our ears. But that's because of the order of grace. Yeah? In the order of grace, the pure makes that which is impure, pure. That which is impure cannot cause that which is pure to become impure. That's the order we live under. In the Levitical order, that's non-existent. So therefore, even the Holy of Holy is susceptible to become impure because of the touch of an impure priest. And if you understand that, if you have that in the back of your head, in your mind, when you're thinking, this, if you've grew up as a, as, a, as a Jew, living according to the law, understanding those laws of purity, understanding how important the sanctuary is, and how important it is to preserve the sanctuary, and hence, preserve yourself from impurity, Jesus is a scandal to you. If you cannot see God in Him, it's a scandal. Right? If you cannot see God in Him, it's a scandal. You can at least understand where they're coming from. Well, I mean that when Jesus comes and tells them, nothing that enters the mouth can render a man impure. That's a scandal. When Jesus sees a leper and touches the leper, he's become impure. When Jesus sees the dead girl and goes and touches her, he's become impure. Right? So, he's basically telling them that it's okay to do what the law of Moses told them never to do. That's really hard. That is really hard. And if you only see in him a man, then it's a scandal to you. He is subversive. He's, he's taking... 
your, the core of your faith and throwing it out. That's what it looks like. That's why they wanted him crucified. Add to that that he told them, I am the Son of Man, which is a divine title. Remember, Jesus didn't say the Son of Man, speaking of himself, to say, I'm just little Jesus. I'm just going to be humble. No. He's taking on the title that comes from the vision of Isaiah. When Isaiah saw the throne of God, he says, and I saw one in the likeness of a Son of Man. And Jesus is taking on that messianic divine title. And then he told them in in the Gospel of St. John, Amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He used Yahweh, the divine name. It's, it's, it's scandalous. But it's important for us to walk that walk with the Jews and become a Christian. Make that leap of faith in the person of Christ. Even if we're born into the Catholic Church. Or we came to it as we grew up. But it's important not to forget what Jesus represents based on the entire history of salvation. You should never drink the blood. Drink my blood. I mean, talk about, talk about a scandal. It was really hard for them. We have to appreciate that difficulty. So we can be thankful about what we got. We got that automatically. Yeah, we just eat the bread, drink the blood. You know how you know how how eerie and weird and 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 strange and and bizarre it sounds to somebody's non-Christian. You're eating the flesh and blood of your God. That's so bizarre. All right. Although impurity of corpses affected everyone, it was permissible for an Israelite to become impure when necessary. Such an individual could then be restored to purity. By following the proper procedures, which we've seen already, you have to wash yourself and then wait to the end of the day and then you become pure again. Priests, by exception, were not similarly permitted, except in the case of an ordinary priest who was granted the dispensation when one of his close relatives died. The high priest, however, was prevented from attending even the burial of his own parents. So, in effect, this law eliminated the funerary role for the Israelite priesthood. And that is... This reflects the abhorrence felt in ancient Israel toward the cult of the dead. Okay, so again, go back to Egypt. What did the Egyptians do with the dead? They not, not only mummified them. That was the first part. What else did they do? Well, yeah, yeah, they did that. But then once the person has been mummified, if he's a person of importance, what happens? You lock him up in the pyramid, and what do you do also? You lock up his wife... And all the slaves. Yeah? That's what you do. That's part of the cult of the dead. And who officiated over all of this? The priests. So here, keep Egypt always in the background. Right? God is removing them from any temptation. Right? To get into the cult of the dead. Because really, there is very little distance, very little distance between the cult of the dead and then the cult of the demons. These two are really closely related. You get in one, you get in the other. Because you can see here that in God's, in God's mind, purity outweighs charity. That's a problem for us. 
purity outweighs charity. It's a problem for us because in our mind, charity rules above everything. Right? We want to be charitable. So we don't even think about purity. So, for instance, I'll give you some examples in, from our own time. Some of you have gone through those examples. You have a Catholic relative, friend, acquaintance, somebody you know who's getting married. And this person has chosen to be married outside of the Catholic Church. But they have not renounced their faith. Most of us will be inclined to say, well, yeah, we're going to go there celebrate with them. Not thinking about what is it we're really celebrating. Right? Because here what we're celebrating is a break of the law of the church. So we're basically saying it's not that important. What is more important how we feel about it. Which is going to be there. Charity trumps purity. The real charitable act to do, not the selfish one, the real one, the hard love here is to say, I cannot attend your celebration. Because that would be a wrong sign of communion. I am not in communion with you when you do this. I'll pray for you. Right? Or I may attend the party afterwards. You can do that. But I'm not going to go attend a celebration that is not expressing truth. Right? Now you have to say it nicely, obviously. Right? But you have to say the truth and live by it. This is, you can see it, it's very strong in Leviticus. And you can, at least as we study this book, you get a mind of God. His mindset isn't ours. He's not as concerned as we are sometimes about how, you know, how to be sensitive towards somebody else. We should be. But that is not the primary thing. Let me be very blunt. If you had to choose between being sensitive and between saying the truth, if you had no choice, if you're talking to somebody and no matter how diplomatically you can put it, that person is going to get offended. Let's say. No matter how... You're not coming to him with a two-by-four. You're trying to be nice and... right. But even that will cause this person to be offended. If your choice is between offending that person or not speaking the truth, right? It is effectively a choice between offending that person or offending God. That's your real choice. Because don't think that God is not offended. If anything, if you learn anything from this book of Leviticus, is to see how God reacts. Yes. So, that is important. Charity doesn't trump truth. Charity doesn't trump purity. It, affir- it affirms them. It makes them, it brings them into beauty. It has a way of expressing them that is soft and gentle and kind and meek, but it expresses them. It doesn't suppress truth. Yeah? Okay, I have no idea what I said all that. But there you go. All right. The marital restrictions imposed on the priesthood set an ideal standard for a wife, a virgin, usually from one's own patrilineal clan or tribe, and that's mandated for the high priest. Okay, let's talk about virginity. Why is virginity important to God? Because God wants to control women. Purity. Purity. It's a sign of purity. Yes, yes, it is. But I want to be careful with that. 
I, I completely agree. It is a sign of purity. But unfortunately, because of our own Victorian background and Puritanic background, we can be tempted to think that virginity means purity and sex means dirty. That's not at all the case. And I know, Rich, you're not saying that. I just want to clarify it. Okay? We can be tempted because of the way this culture has been going and a bunch of other reasons to think that virginity means purity. Yeah, it does. Because sex means dirty. This would be like saying a steak means good health because broccoli is dirty. It's just as incongruous, that statement we make about virginity. We oppose one to the other, but it has nothing to do with it. Okay, let's reaffirm again and again, time and again, the teaching of the Catholic Church, which is the only sound teaching on sexuality out there. Sex is not just good. Yes, sex is good. Sex is good. It's very good. It's meant to be very good. It's meant to be enjoyed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anybody who tells you otherwise doesn't understand the Catholic position. Sex is meant to be enjoyed. Okay? Man, almost sound like a... <laughs> funny. <laughs> Strange moment. Anyways. Somebody might come and walk in and wonder, what is this guy talking about? What do we bring here? <laughs> okay. But, but, sex isn't just good. Good as a human good, like ice cream is good. Okay. Sex is holy. Meaning, sex is a consecration of the body to God. It's the prayer of the bodies. It's the way a body expresses the union that prefigures the union between Christ and His church. It is a holy act. So there is a need in, for us to purify, to purify our understanding and our view of sexuality. We have to do that. So therefore, when we say a virgin, it isn't because God doesn't like women who are not virgin. You understand that? When we say a virgin, it isn't because God and the patriarchal men wanted to control women. First of all, it's a completely absurd idea that anybody could try to control women. But beyond that, the, the, the problem with these statements is that they're negative. God is doing something for a negative reason. But God never does something for a negative reason. He puts out a positive law for a good reason. So what is good about virginity? That's what we want to understand. What is good about virginity? To, to that end, we'll look to the Virgin Mary. Why is the dogma of Mary's virginity so important to us? Why did we have a council affirm that? That Mary was virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. Let me repeat that. Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. And I mean physically virgin. I don't mean symbolically. 
I had somebody once tell me, oh, no, no, we just mean it symbolically. No, we don't. We mean it physically. Why do we assert? Why? Here's why. It has everything to do with the Garden of Eden. It has everything to do with the tabernacle. It has everything to do with the church and everything to do with heaven. Mary's womb was like the Garden of Eden. Adam was planted in the garden. Christ, St. Ephraim says, was like a good seed, was planted in the womb of Mary. Adam was supposed to till and guard the garden. Christ tilled and guarded the womb of Mary. What do we mean by that? We mean he guarded her from original sin. That's the guarding part. And the tilling means that he filled her with grace. Yeah? Virginity, therefore, means completely set apart for God. Consecrated unto the Lord. The reason why we assert the virginity of Our Lady is to say that Mary was totus tuus, completely His, completely holy God's, and no one's else. So therefore, the virginity of Our Lady is the underpinning of a great love story between Mary and God. It affirms that Mary loved God completely, unreservedly, and only God. Which brings us back to the idea of a virgin. A virgin, therefore, becomes someone who is going to be consecrated to her husband. Just as her husband is supposed to be consecrated to his wife. Virginity works both ways, by the way. Not just for the women, but also for men. There is, among some cultures, the Middle Eastern being one of them, this wacky notion that a girl must be virgin, but a guy must have experience before he can get married and settle down. The translation of this means that the girl must be a virgin, but the guy must be liable to hell before he can go get married. That's what we're saying. The girl must be a virgin, but he must be liable to hell, having committed mortal sins, what we call sleeping around. We never say around what, right? But I'll tell you, around hell. And then he's now ready to be married. What kind of wacky thinking is that? So it goes both ways, right? But in this case, in the case of the high priest, he, he is the one who stands between the people and God. He's the one who is going to um, act as the representative of people towards God. Therefore, his bride must also exemplify that consecration. That's why she should be a virgin. That's all there is to it. It has nothing to do with sex. Because unfortunately, in this culture, as soon as we have virginity, we think sex. There's no other meaning. We've taken something that is very rich and reduced it down to something extremely poor. And then finally, we go into the insistence on physical soundness, both for officiating priests and for sacrificial victims. And this reflects the notion that God demands the very best. And he would be offended were any blemish 
or imperfect person and animal to come unto his immediate presence. Now, obviously, this law is a prefigurement of what is to come after. We Remember, the Levitical priesthood, with all its excellence, is still part of the natural law. It is not the supernatural law. When we move into the priesthood instituted by Jesus Christ, it is not so much the physical blemish that matters anymore, but it is the spiritual blemish that matters. No priest should come before the altar with spiritual blemish on him. And by the way, this applies to all of us. We should not go to Mass with spiritual blemish on us. Therefore, frequent confession would be a really good thing. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the uh, why a priest could not marry a divorced woman. Again, divorce in this context is not the context that was used back then. Because back then, when God instituted the law of divorce in Deuteronomy, which we have not seen, we'll see that in the next study we do on the book of Deuteronomy, the only reason, the only reason that was given to allow a woman to divorce, a man to divorce his wife, right? the only reason was Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 and following, was sexual misconduct. That's the only reason. So therefore, a woman who, according to the law of Deuteronomy, was divorced, was divorced for only one reason. She abused of the gift of sexuality. And by the way, the reason why there is no law to allow women to divorce their men for the same reason, right, was, like Jesus said, for the hardness of heart. The law was adapted to their situation. Nevertheless, if a man was caught with a woman, both were supposed to be set, both were supposed to be killed, right? Stoning both of them. But the fundamental reason is that that's why she was supposed to be divorced. Hence, a priest could not, in good conscience, marry a woman who had fallen under such uh, a condition. That's why. Right? To, again, preserve the purity of the, of the, uh, the tabernacle. Not so much by, uh, because sex, again, is dirty, but because there was an offense committed against God, and there is no way to forgive such a sin. Right? Hence, it stands. And you can't be bringing that before the altar and saying, this is consecrated and this is pure. There is no remedy. It's not like today. You could go to confession. Your sins are forgiven. You can't do that back then. You understand? Okay, that's why. Now, I want to say one thing about these perfection, the physical defects. There is a marked correspondence between the physical defects that render a priest unfit and those that render a sacrificial animal, animal unacceptable. And there's a chart, essentially, that will show you this. A priest cannot be blind. An animal cannot be blind when you offer it. A priest cannot have a broken arm or a leg. An animal cannot be injured or maimed. A priest cannot have scurvy. Neither can the animal. A priest cannot have a boil or a scar. Neither can the animal. A limb too short or too long. A limb ex extended or contracted. Crushed testes. Crushed, bruised, torn, or cut testes. A growth in the eye, a win. It's pretty much one to the other. Why do you think this correspondence exists between the two? 
Why is it that the perfection for the priest and for the animal were pretty much the same? What is God telling them? Yes, a beginning identification of the priest and the victim and a constant reminder, you could be, you could be that. A constant reminder that the sacrifice is sacrificed on your behalf. Now, it is important to read these chapters in the context of the book of Ezekiel, especially chapter 36, verse 19 through 29. Here's the Lord talking to Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel is the only prophet who's also a priest. Of all the prophets, there's only one who's a priest and prophet, and that's Ezekiel. Verse 19, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their conduct and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that men said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel caused to be profaned among the nations, to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will take you, I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. You shall dwell in the land which I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people. I will be your God. And I will deliver you from your, all your uncleannesses. It is for the sake of the name of the Lord that the laws we're reading right now, chapter 21, 22, are given. It isn't for the sake of the Israelites. It's very clear. Ezekiel is very clear. I didn't do that. For their sake, I did it for the sake of my holy name. What is the holy name of God? What is the holy name of God? Yes, and we know him on another name. Jesus Christ. You have to see that in the context of the incarnation. It is for the sake of my holy name that I did all of this. Everything that is being done, remember, is done for the glory of God. And through the glory of God, sanctifies us. But not for us first. First, for the sake of God's holy name. And everything we do must be likewise. For the sake of God's holy name. This is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 19 through 29. Therefore... If an Israelite, even back then, if a priest understood all these regulations as expressing God's, God's concern or God's love or God's 
intend to preserve his holy name, then his attitude should go beyond those rules. Why? A priest, in later, in later times, for a man to be allowed to be declared priest, he had to prove that he was a descendant of Aaron through seven generations. And then he had to be one without defect. Well, what, what temptation is there in all of this? What is lurking for the priest, for that man who is now admitted as a priest? What's lurking behind all of these? Remember, he has no blemish. Right? What's, what's lurking? Pride. Pride. Right? Pride. Um, incidentally, you know, I have, a, I, have a, a, I have a scientific background, so I always like to come up with metrics or things that we can relate to, we can use to measure. If you want to know if you have pride or not, or to what degree you have pride or not, I'll give you a simple measuring yardstick to use. It's proportional. Your pride is proportional to the number of times you check yourself in the mirror. Simple. I'm going to leave it at that. Okay? So, but if you are, if you are one who's considered without any blemish, pride is lurking. Right? The only thing you can stop that is if you're doing it with concerns of the name of the Lord. And if you're really concerned about it, back to what we were saying earlier, uh, uh, purity trumps charity, that you're going to do it because God says so and God wants you to do it this way, where is that going to lead you eventually? Or where could that lead you to? Well, you're going to be possibly laughed at. You're going to be possibly scorned and possibly persecuted. What is... Built into those laws is martyrdom. God has told His priests what He's expecting of them. And He doesn't say, and oh, by the way, if somebody puts a sword to your neck, it's okay then to compromise. You understand? What is behind all the laws and regulation is an attitude that says, the holiness of God above all else, including my Life. And that correspondence between the priest and the offering should constantly remind the priest of that. I could be there too. And in fact, it happened. It happened in the times of the Maccabees. Right? When Antiochus Epiphanes came in and then he completely desecrated the temple. He sacrificed pigs in the Holy of Holies. And he put Greek statues in the temple. The temple was profaned. Then Judas Maccabee and his brothers rebelled and initiated the Maccabean War, which is in the last two books of the Old Well, not depending on the order, the last two historical books of the Old Testament. In those books, and I, re I really recommend you read that chapter, in two Maccabees, the second book of Maccabees, chapter 7, you have recounted there the 
the account of the mother with seven brothers who were arrested and were being compelled by the king to reject the law and eat what is unlawful, eat swine, which is unlawful. And all seven brothers refused, and they were all tortured before their mother. They were all tortured before her eyes, and she encouraged them. And then finally she was killed last. Built into these laws of Leviticus is martyrdom. God is expecting a lot. He's expecting His people to shoulder a great responsibility. And yet, He has not given them divine grace. Because divine grace comes from Christ. Well, how could they then perform such deeds? How could these seven brothers and their mother go on to martyrdom without grace? Well... They did not. They went there with grace. Because what God was expecting His people then to do, if they understood what the law was saying, is to come to Him and ask for the grace. No different than us. No different than us. We have the same exact challenge. We have the same exact challenge we find it very difficult to submit ourselves to the holy will of God. We find it very challenging to accept His will. And most often than not, His will means contradiction to our own will. Because if He doesn't contradict our will, how are we going to be able to grow in holiness? How are we going to be able to grow in holiness if God is going to give us exactly what we want and what we ask for? How? He'd be like a father who gives his children candies every time they ask for it. And they think they're in health. They're in good health. Everything is good. They're eating candy. Well, the same thing. Hmm? The same thing. So, that's built into it. And it's very strange. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a contradiction because these two aspects, God delivering Israel through His holy name, and Israel... Israel embracing this deliverance through death. You're delivered if you die for God, which is a weird concept. Again, it's a scandal. The apostles didn't understand that at all. They couldn't bear the thought that Jesus had to die. They couldn't bear the thought of them having to die. We don't either. You know how we can tell that? We get very flustered and anxious seeing the world seemingly triumph over the church. Seeing the Christian's law flouted. Seeing things that are happening which upset us and for good reasons. We have the same issue. With them it was, you can't go to the cross and die. With us it is, the church can't be destroyed. The church can shrink. The, these candles should not be... Ha- we have the same issue. We're just waiting for God to come and deliver us from the Romans. You understand? I'm not saying... Again, be, I want to be careful here. I am not saying, oh, just ignore all these things, walk around. You know, life is a bouquet of roses and everything is fine. 
That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we should apprehend these problems and look at them through the eyes of Mary. In every one of her apparition, you know she was concerned. You know she was uh, saddened. You know she was offended. So those are normal feelings to have. I'm not saying we shouldn't have them. But it was always through the lens of the holy name of Jesus. Do not offend do not offend our Lord anymore, for He is much too offended, she said in Fatima. She didn't say, she didn't say, do not change the political systems, do not offend each other, do not offend the Lord. Right? The eyes were on her son for His sake, not for any other sake, His, and only His. And this is what we miss in this whole equation. They missed it back then. The apostles missed it. We missed it. Which is okay. God expects that. He knows how we function. But if you really want to grow in your faith, if you're truly serious about seeing growth in your faith, then you have to understand that you've got to accept and submit yourself completely to the will of God. And that means every day. Every day. That means fighting with your emotions. That means not allowing your mind to wander about how great a situation could be or allow your mind to wander while you're criticizing somebody or chastising somebody or, or arguing with somebody or talking to somebody. Or It means controlling your emotions so that they can be conformed to right reason. It means keeping your peace. It means accepting those anxieties that God sent your way. Accepting the frustration that God sent your way. And smile. It means setting time aside for prayer. And be consistent and faithful. That's what it means to take your faith seriously. Because you're doing it for God. Only for Him. No other reason. That's how it's supposed to work. Because otherwise, how do we get out of ourselves? How do we are freed from the dead men in us. The Trappist monk, Christian de Cherger, who was killed by Islamic terrorists after being kidnapped from his monastery in Algeria on May 24, 1996, wrote to his parents in a time of imminent danger and said, My life has no more value than any other, nor any less value. In any case, it has not the innocence of childhood, I have lived long enough to know that I, that I share in the evil which seems, alas, to prevail in the world, even in that which would strike me, would strike me blindly. I should like, when a time comes, to have a clear space which would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and of all my fellow human beings, and at the same time to forgive with all my heart the one who would strike me down. That's a self-giving of life. Let's not think that when he wrote this, let's romanticize this. Let's not think that when he wrote this, you know, everything was peaceful and joyful and angels were singing around. He probably had times of frustration and anxiety and anger and sadness and questioning and gone through the whole realm of human emotions. 
but everything was oriented in one line doing God's will and pleasing God in everything. And that's what these two chapters are all about. To the priest, it's a sign of perfection. But if he sticks to the letter, like we are tempted to understand them, then he misses the boat. It becomes a checklist. But if he understands them as a signpost pointing to the splendor of God, then the beauty of God is revealed through them. And that is why this law is called a code of holiness. Because it brings you to the door, it brings you to the port. It allows you to make that travel, to go the distance and meet God. It won't get, get you there on its own, but it makes it possible for you, only if you ask. Only if you ask. Okay. A couple more things I want to point out to you. It's very interesting that um, it would seem that for the law of the dead, God did not even make an exception for the death of his wife. The one one verse is very mysterious and hard, where he says, um, He shall not defile himself as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. Okay, that's verse 4. Interestingly enough, a number of non-Catholic translations of Scripture renders it this way. But he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people, to profane himself. They kind of drop the husband. And that's based on the word Baal, which means, which has been taken to mean my Lord. So a wife would call her husband my Baal. That was the adoption of that word from the uh, surrounding culture, Canaanite Phoenician culture, where it meant God, but it also meant the Lord, the Baal. All right? so, uh, but the tr- proper translation is a husband. So it would seem as if it says that even in the, in the death of his wife, he's not supposed to go and be, be present when she's buried. But the interesting thing is that if you watch the tradition of the Jews, you will see that they will quote Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Although you may debate that this was before the fall, and therefore applies only after Jesus instituted the new covenant. There would be place for debate there. But Maimonides, for instance, who was a great um, uh, rabbi, explains, as regard the wife of a priest, one must render himself impure even against his will, but the duty to render himself impure is only by enactment of the scribes. They gave her the status of a dead person whom one is commanded to bury. In other words, the way he would he interpreted it is that the scribes would be the ones who would go and inspect the wife and render themselves impure, not the priest. So that he put some level, some um, distance between the priest and the wife to allow him to be present at the burial of his wife, which is sort of interesting. This means that this duty is not ordained in the Torah. It was reasoned by the sages that situations might arise where such a woman's only heir would be her husband, and if he failed to attend to her burial, there would be no one else to do so. So what would you do in that case? Right. Interestingly enough, there were here's a, the, clearly an oral tradition that was living among the Jews, which is not inscribed in Scripture. Right. So this is where we get this notion of an oral tradition that we uh, follow. And the other commentary I would like to make is, let me just find it here, um, concerning the Our Father. None of the line of Aaron who is a leper or suffers a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. 
So there are situations where you can be temporarily unclean. You have to clean yourself. And he's saying to the priests that you're not going to eat of the holy things which are given to you until you are clean. Right? But then verse 7, he adds, When the sun is down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because such are his food. Such are his food. The holy things are his food that he receives when? But on a regular basis, when he's not unclean, when he's clean, when does the priest receive this food? The same day. It's the same day. So what would you call that food? The daily food. The daily food. In fact, in fact, even here in the commentary, they will call it the daily bread. It would be unfair to uh, deprive the priest of their daily bread. So even in our Father, when Jesus says, give us today our daily bread, that's the context behind it. It's the whole sacrificial system. You understand? Give us today our daily bread. Didn't mean it, you're paid daily, go get some food. The reference here is the liturgy. And the reference is liturgical. It is priestly. Because the priests receive their food daily. Hence, we receive our food daily when what? That's the key. Well, well, when you go to Mass, yes, absolutely. So, Eucharist is our daily food, yes. But there's something implied here. How can a priest receive his daily food? What must happen? Sacrifice. So, you see... When we say, give us our daily bread, what's behind it is the sacrifice. Do you understand that? Behind this is a sacrifice. It's liturgical from beginning to end. Give us today our daily bread isn't, you know, Santa Claus is going to come by and drop a loaf of bread and we're done. It's, we're static. We're standing right here. God is dropping the food. No. It's the whole liturgy. You have a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You have a sacrifice for your own sins. You actually do something and God gives you your daily bread. Yeah? Because then the daily bread you received is hallowed. The other important element that I want to point out to you in Our Father is this. In connection with the reading we've done in Ezekiel, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What did he say in Ezekiel? I did all this for the sake of my name. So when we say, hallowed be thy name, what are we saying? Yeah, but why? God's name is holy. Think about it for a second. We can't do nothing to add holiness to God's name. So what's the point of us saying, hallowed be thy name? It sounds like I'm saying one plus one equal two. Do you understand the, 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 the strangeness of that statement? How can I pray that God's name be holy? Yeah? You can make the name of God holy. How? That's it. It is through the liturgy that God's name is hallowed. So what is behind that statement, Our Father... In other words, the Our Father is is 
inseparable from the Mass. Because you cannot, you, you and I cannot fulfill the Our Father on our own account, right? We don't have anything to make God's name holy, right? But can Jesus do that? Yes. Did He do that? Yes. On the cross and in every Mass. That is how both of these statements in the Our Father are fulfilled in the Mass. And in fact, I would argue every single one of them is fulfilled to the Mass. So you can't pray the Our Father separately from the Mass. And that's why, in fact, the whole Rosary is connected to the Mass. Yeah? Okay. So, we're coming to the tail end of the observation of the priesthood in Levitical order. Next week, we're going to move over and start looking at the lay side. What God told the lay folks. And we're going to see more of that in the book of Deuteronomy. It's even more explicit. What is important to realize is that God established the priesthood and required a very high standard of them for the purpose of hallowing His name. Because only in hallowing God's name could they actually bring salvation to the nations, which was the mission of Israel. And everything we've seen here is a pointer, is a preparation, is a training to the coming of Christ where he will bring the grace into the world and establish a priesthood that fulfills what was promised in the the Aaronic priesthood. That was the promise. Here will live the fulfillment. So, it is, remember that we are all priest, prophet, and king. We all have those duties. We participate by offering sacrifice. We participate by our prayers of intercession. We participate by praying for each other, by teaching, by imparting wisdom. Those are all priestly functions. And then there is the liturgical priesthood through which everything is consummated and brought before God the Father through the intercession, not through the intercession, through the mediation of Jesus Christ. Which makes all of that possible. Leviticus is a preparation for this. And at least when we study it, we can think of the Mass and think of our behavior in the liturgy and our role that we play. I think this is why it was important for us to study this. Okay, let's say a word of prayer. and After that, we can take some questions. Questions? Yes. So the question is, will God give you perfect contrition? Yes, so first of all, none of us can have true condition. We cannot. Because if we could, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. So it's a complete gift of God to give it to us. Yes, in time, He will fulfill that. that that's an absolute. Because the fact that you're going to confession is already an invitation from Him. He's going to give you that. Yeah. So that's number one. Number two. Um, I would be careful to say that I will never repeat that thing again. Be very careful with that statement. Simply because none of us know ourselves so perfectly that we can make that statement. And also it might make us believe that we can rely on our own strength. right? Whereas really it is God's strength. So it's always better off to say, it's always better to say, by the grace of God, 
by the grace of God, and if He wills it, I will not do this again. Because that even acts as a guard against our, our own will to think that we can do stuff on our own. Because usually, when we say to God, I will never do this again, it's on your to-do. Right? I still remember living in Canada, and then I still remember promising myself I will never set foot in the United States, ever. Yeah, 17 years here. Okay? So when my kids say, I'm never going to do this again, I look up and I say, did you hear that? So just be careful with that. Uh, but definitely, absolutely, God wants to give us perfect contrition because He wants us to go to heaven. And the fact that we're going to confession on a regular basis is a sign of His gracious desire to unite Himself to us. But He's preparing us for it. Have I answered your question? But contrition isn't feelings. It, yes, it does take time. Yeah. Yeah. Usually, it's, it's proportional to how much we spend time in that sin. That's how long it takes. He really likes us to really understand what we're dealing with. Right? But that's what he does. Yes. Okay, so it's really simple. When you go into confession, you may not have perfect contrition. All you need to do is come in being sorry for your sins. Now, let's define what that means. Being sorry for your sins. It means that you, if you had it in your power not to do that thing again, you would not do it again. And if there was any reparation you need to do, you would do it. That's enough. Just that. Now, you might be in that mind state because you don't want to go to hell. That's a good thing, right? That is attrition. That's the state of attrition. You're going to confession because you're afraid of going to hell. You're thinking about you. That's good. I want to say it again. That is good. All right? It's good. God is happy with somebody coming to confession, even if that guy's thinking about, I don't want to go to hell. Perfect example, the prodigal son. Prodigal son woke up and says, what am I doing here? I'm dying of hunger. Nobody's giving me any food. I go back to my father's house and tell him, treating me as your servants. They have, he's thinking of himself. He's thinking of his belly, none of his dad. You get it? He's got attrition, not contrition. Right? Okay. If you have that, that's all you need to do. So what does that mean? It's not how you feel. It's not you feeling sorry. It's not you want to cry. That, that, that is okay. That's, that's nice if you have it, but it doesn't matter. What matters is what you do after. What matters is what do you do after. When you come out, your actions speak louder than words. That's what matters. So therefore, if you're serious about confession, you're going to be serious about your prayer life. Because what guards you from sin is prayer. So, you can't be serious about confession if you just go to confession and then you don't pray all week. This is like saying to God, okay, here, a shot of holiness, and now here, a shot of sinfulness. A little bit of that and a little bit of this. I'll go to Mass, and after that I'll go to name your place, right? You've got to have your life, prayer life in order, and you be disciplined about it, and you follow through. That's how you connect the two. Yeah? Yeah. Yes, very good. So the question is, you go to confession and you're not serious about wanting to change. Confession is about repentance and conversion. Changing from one way, turning to God. 
That's what confession is all about. So if you're not going with that intention, you're not bringing the proper form. I'm sorry, you're not bringing the proper matter, right? Every sacrament has matter and form. Baptism, right? What is the matter? Matter is water. What is the form? The words of baptism. Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Eucharist, what is the matter? Bread and wine. What is the form? The words of consecration, right? Confession, what is the matter? Not the sins. It's your contrition, your repentance. That's what you bring into confession. And the form is, and I, through the the power of the church, absolve you, not forgive you, absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then, your sins are forgiven. Right? But if you're just going there, they told you the story of the pigs, right? Remember that. It's always the same good story. The guy who went there and then confessed that he stole a pig. And the priest told him, well, aren't you going to do reparation? Return the pig. That would be a sign that you are really contrite, that you're sorry. You re- repair what you've done. So I can't, I ate it. Well, all right, can't you pay for it? Sure, how much? $50, that'll work. Okay, now, giving $50 is showing that you're contrite. Okay, the second week, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Yes, my son, I stole a pig. Weren't you here last week? Yeah. But didn't I tell you to make reparation? Yeah, you told me to give $50 back. So I went and gave $100 back, and I stole another pig, because it's cheap. Okay, well, there is no matter. You understand? He's not contrite. Yeah? Yes. That's the key. Yes. Okay, so the question is, can you receive absolution of a mortal sin without a priest? That's what the question is. Right? Okay. The answer is twofold. One, yes, you can. God is always willing and wanting to forgive you. Why? Because God can act outside of the sacraments. He can do that. Answer number two, we should not tempt God. The fact that God can do whatever He wants does not absolve us from doing what He asked us to do. Leviticus is a good sign of this. So God established the proper means, the normal means of having absolution of sins through the priesthood. Therefore, therefore, in almost every case, a person, a Catholic, bound by the laws of the church, cannot receive absolution of mortal sins when he is breaking the law of the church. Make sense? Okay. So, there is another reason why it is important to go to confess to the priest. Because when you're confessing before the... Confession isn't just to God. That's a misconception. We see it in Leviticus all the time. It is God and the community. It is God and the church. You're asking forgiveness for the, the evil that your sins brought on the entire church. And the priest, standing as a representative of the church, says you're forgiven on behalf of the church. Right? So that's the other reason why it's important to do so. So, can God, God do, can do anything He wants. You're on an island, all alone. You've been stranded there. There is no priest. And you're going to die. Will God say, whoops, sorry. No priest. Would He do that? No. No. Probably He sent you Padre Pio. It would be known to happen. There was a, a, a Freemason who was pretty high up. And on his deathbed, he wanted a priest. But his fellow Freemason cordoned his house, would not allow a priest to come in. 
Well, Padre Pio went after he had died. Or before, I don't remember. I don't know if it mattered. But anyways, yeah. So, no. Yeah, obviously, God will. Right? If you're dying, if, you don't, there's no priest. But here's the better answer. Usually, if you are asking God to do His will, you will not find yourself in a situation like this. God will always arrange the priest will come and see you. All right? Yes. No. No. On the moment of death, are you required to confess all your sins? Thank God, no. Because probably when you're dying, well, you're barely able to really think it through. No. You can do what is called a general confession. You can do it once. You can do it more if you want. But let's not confuse confession with therapy. We don't go to confession to receive therapy. The priest is not there for therapeutic reasons. We're not supposed to tell him our life story and complain to him and have him pat us on the shoulder. Okay? No. So you can do it once, which is a good thing to do, but it's done. Right. But remember, believe. You're forgiven. That's it. And here's the beautiful thing. I told you about that. In the second coming... On the second judgment, I mean, we have two judgments, right? When you die, there's your personal judgment. And then after, at the end of the world, there is the general judgment. Why do we have two judgments? Because the first one is for you. Only you. The second one is for everybody to know what you did. Because that's part of justice. Except, except those sins you've confessed. Because God doesn't just forgive. He forgets. Yes. Well, of course, if you don't do reparation, the confession is not valid. So whatever punishment, penance, punishment, penance the priest gave you, you do. Sometimes people complain, well, he just gave me two Hail Marys. I'm going to say the whole rosary. Well, okay, say the whole rosary. Say the two Hail Marys first. Mm-hmm. Obey what the priest gave you and trust and believe that you're forgiven. Now, remember, for, confession is about forgiveness of sins. It is not about removal of temporal punishment due to sin. Yeah? These is where indulgences come into the picture. The Stations of the Cross, spending time before the Holy, uh, um, um, reading the Bible. You call on the graces that are part of the treasury of the church to pay for these things. It's like you broke a window. You ask for forgiveness. The owner forgave you. You just have to repair it. It's a very expensive window. It's $4,000. You don't have $4,000. Guess what? You have this rich friend there who says, no problem, I'll cover for you. That's an indulgence. Yes. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Year of the faith. Yeah, almost in every year when I declare a year, there is indulgences attached to that year. Yes, it's not a question of faith. It's a question of the teachings of the church. And that's the power of the, of, of, of the church to be able to offer indulgences attached to the year of the faith. Yes. I don't know them by heart. It's probably the close of the year, right? It's usually the close of the year. Yes, yes. The brief answer is that he had not yet ascended to the Father. But by the time he saw the apostles, he had already done that. It is because he has to descend from heaven. He has to ascend for first and then receive his power and glory and authority from the Father and be sent again to enter into his glory on earth. Then he could be amongst us. That's the short answer. You understand? Jesus does everything in conformity to the will of his Father. As the resurrection happened, he had not yet ascended to God. 
it was not right because he said it. Right? It's not yet the time. We, we cannot be close yet. I have to ascend to my Father. Then I receive all power and dominion and all the things that will allow me to be close to you. In, in this order. Yeah. Because she's only thinking of him, but his, he's presenting her with a Trinitarian view. It isn't just about me. It's about my Father and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Last question. Yeah, the answer is that in all these things, it, he did everything through, his, through obedience to his Father. And as a man, therefore, everything he did was through prayers to his Father. The, the raising of the dead, all the miracles that he did were through prayers of his Father. The only exception is the transfiguration. right? And then also the baptism in the Jordan. Because those were a real show of his divinity. Right? But other than that, he saved us as a man. And as a man, he was able to accomplish all these things. In union with the Father. And he knew, uh, absolutely. So that's, it is very important for us to realize that it was his, through his humanity that Jesus saved us. And that's why so many of his uh, um, uh, apostles and followers were able to do even greater miracles than his. I mean, Jesus' shadow never healed anybody, right? But St. Peter's shadow, people would line up the sick just in the hope that the shadow of St. Peter will come on them. All right? So that's not a sign of divinity. Right? We have a lot of saints who did miracles. They're not divine. Yeah. We could not have, we could not have understood on our own that Jesus is divine. He had to tell us. And He did. Right? I and the Father am one. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. Right? How could you ask to see the Father... Have I been okay? All these statements is, is affirm the divine nature of Jesus, right? But that's what's so stupendous about it is that even though he is divine, he acted so humbly, right? That's the amazing thing for us. Yeah, you're right. But it is again through his humanity that he did that, right. which is right, really the amazing thing about it. I mean, if he he himself said it in the garden. When somebody raised a sword, right? Don't you think my father could send? And I mean, he could do anything, but he restrained himself all the way through, just to show us what is possible through faith in him, right? But it is true that it is divine power that came out of him. But he grew in wisdom as a man, submitting himself to Mary and Joseph. Yeah, it is the the, the this is what we call the adorable humanity of Christ. Okay, yes, Helen. Sure. The whole universe. And it's actually St. Paul who says, the whole of creation groans awaiting the salvation that is promised. So when original sin happened, it's really a cosmic shattering. is isn't just for human. The entire order was, was broken. Yeah. All right? Absolutely. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.